Well, good morning, everybody. So we've been talking about prophecy and kind of how to do it um, over three sessions, Friday and Saturday. And <clears throat> this morning I want to do something a little different. I don't know if this is going to come off as a sermon or a teaching or some blend um, because I know what I want it to do, but sometimes you get going with something and it takes on a life of its own. So we'll just have to see how we roll with it. But, you know, the Scripture admonishes us not to despise prophetic utterance. And one of the primary ways that we despise prophetic utterance, of course, is we don't really heed the words of prophecy that come. We, we disregard them. That would be another way of saying to despise. And so few would say, I hate prophecy. But they would disregard prophecy, and they might do it actively. And in so doing, they might actually find that they're quenching the things of God. They're, they're shutting down the move of the Spirit. Now, that's a big statement, but it's, I think it's right biblically. So um, what I want to share with you this morning is about the P of prophecy. Now, the reason I say it that way is um, I have a book that's in edit right now. Uh, it's not ready for prime time yet, but um, it's about the kingdom of God. And it's, uh, it's called The Kingdom of God, uh, Practical Theology for the Modern Worker of Signs and Wonders. And I think it'll probably be ready to go someplace to a publishing house, um, more or less the first of the year. So what I'm going to share with you are some thoughts and excerpts out of that uh, as it pertains to prophecy, because I think for many of us, prophecy is both, um, well, without knowing it, unwittingly, um, somehow maybe not as esteemed as it might be, and then in that sense it's despised, uh, but also it's not well understood what its role is. Why does it matter? Why do we need prophets in the church? Why do we, why do, we do this stuff? Especially because, as we talked about yesterday, sometimes people who are prophetic can engage in some unusual behaviors as they come under the influence of the Spirit of God. Like that. <laughs> Thanks, David. Appreciate that. <laughs> Good on you, mate. So, there's four of these P's, and I'm not going to really go into the other three today. It's a whole conference that I've written on the 4P paradigm. But one of the P's is prophecy, just because someone will ask, well, what are the others? I will tell you what they are, but I'm not really going to go into it. So we've got prophecy, power, purity, and presence. And when you have all four of them functioning in the right mix, you get dramatic inbreaking of the kingdom of God. You get huge moves of God. You can trigger regional outpourings that will go across whole geographies. I'm not just talking about a localized revival in a church where... You know, maybe people put their hands in the air and, you know, Shabba, Shandala, whatever. Uh, I mean, that's all great. We love it. But, you know, God has bigger things in mind. And so this P of prophecy is kind of the leading edge of everything. It's where we, it's where we, we begin it. And in the end, it might be uh, where we end it as well. Maybe it comes full circle. So Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God. Now, for those who don't know, don't have a framework, kingdom of God is language you may have heard many, many times, depending on how much time you've spent in church, how well you know the Bible. But what the kingdom of God is all about is not well understood. I can remember as a young boy hearing my grandmother talk about the kingdom of God and hearing the preacher in the Methodist church that she went to talk about the kingdom of God. But in, in that time... If you heard anyone talking about the kingdom of God, it meant get saved, go to heaven. 
right? And, and the, the cognate term means the same thing, but it's different verbiage. Kingdom of heaven, that's even closer. So it was, you know, sort of give your life to Christ and go to heaven. Well, yeah, that's part of it, but that's about this much of it. There's, there's a much wider scope to what the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is about. And when <clears throat> Jesus came preaching about the kingdom of God, there are a lot of people, including biblical scholars and theologians and a lot of modern preachers, therefore, because they will have read those same theologians and scholars. There are a lot of people who believe that, you know, the preaching of the kingdom of God was something that Jesus did. It was something that he brought and taught on. And it was, well, it was restricted to the first century. And Although we can talk about the kingdom of God now, it's really not much more than a historical artifact. And it's it somehow related to the life of Jesus, but that makes it 2,000 years old. And so it's kind of like, yeah, what else you got? We've moved on. You'll hear people even use that language. But that same kind of thinking is the same kind of thinking that tells people, well, Jesus died for your sins, which is true, he did, but... With that, they usually will say something like, you know, believe that and it's all finished, and consequently Christianity becomes little more than, well, cheap fire insurance. You paid nothing for it, but, you know, on the last day, I guess you somehow are saved from a bad outcome. I, we're not allowed to use some words in church anymore, but a bad outcome. And so um, then there's other people who say, well, you know, there's still these times when the kingdom of God manifests the kingdom of God comes at, at those moments of God's choosing, but we really don't have much to do with it. There's nothing we can do to affect it. And so what I want to do is try and lay the axe to the root of all of those ideas in this talk. And I want to I try and talk about this P of prophecy and how it is catalytic, how it is central to the release of kingdom power and kingdom life. And that's why we would spend three sessions this weekend teaching about prophecy, because otherwise you might have thought it would be better to go to the footy or to, you know, whatever, go shopping or whatever you had else to do. So, <clears throat> prophecy, this P of prophecy, is the living word of God. It is the voice of God. Now, next year in my travels, I'm, I'm writing a new conference called The Voice of God. It's, it's all about this, and I'm, I'm going to expand this considerably because I, I, I've learned how important having a grounding in the prophetic is to seeing the release of kingdom power. And I don't think most people really appreciate the voice of God, but this word voice, the kol Yahweh, is a, it's, it's a term that even the Hebrew prophets and the mystics sort of grabbed a hold of, and it, it became something that they were I don't know if you want to say haunted, but they were certainly drawn to it and entranced by it. And so let's take a look at how the voice of God forms, and we're going to look at how the voice of God and the prophetic word precede the first great move of kingdom outbreak that occurred in the first century in the ministry of John the Baptist and with Jesus. And so in Luke chapter 3, Luke writes this way, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, 
And he went out into the region all around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, this is the voice, this is the coal Yahweh, crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight. And the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This was the inauguration of John's ministry. And it came because a dabar, a word of God, formed in the soul of John the Baptist. And as the word of God redoubled and then redoubled and then redoubled in upon itself, it became more and more and more powerful until the Kol Yahweh, the voice of God, came thundering out across the desert of Judea. Prophecy ought to have that kind of overwhelming, overarching, powerful effect to it. It should be the kind of thing that when you hear it, it arrests you. Kind of like worship did this morning. There was something about worship this morning from the very first chord. It just gripped you and arrested you and drew you into something. Prophecy should be that way. When it isn't, something's wrong. It's somehow been, I don't know, emasculated for lack of a better term. Now the thing that's interesting about what Luke tells us here in Luke 3 is that this word emerged in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius was his name. He was the Caesar named Tiberius. He followed Augustus who followed Julius. You'll remember Augustus. He was the one that issued a decree that the whole Roman world should be taxed. And he was the son of Julius Caesar who anybody would know, if nothing else, because William Shakespeare wrote a play about it. But it was in the 15th year that this happened. This is anchored in time. This is something that is not just a subjective thing of, well, I had like this radical experience. <laughs> and so much of prophecy has become mystical and ahistorical, not tied to anything specific and yet when we read the writings of the prophets in the Old Testament as well as the New such as they are they're more limited in the New but anyway when we read the writings of these prophetic men and women what we find is that these events of prophesying break out in the midst of a historic context there's a specific time and place they can point to and they say the Word of God came and in this instance, it was in the 15th year of Tiberius. And he tells us that Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. Now, Pontius Pilate was a proconsul. And the way the Romans ran their empire, they would have specific individuals that were in, they stood in the place of Caesar. The only person higher than the proconsul was Caesar himself. And so they had delegated authority that had been given to them in a time when there were no phone lines and no internet connections. And so it might take days or months to get word back and forth. So they needed trusted men that would think like Caesar and govern like Caesar and rule in Caesar's stead. And what the Romans did was they took every proconsular area and broke it into four pieces. And that's why we read about these tetrarchs. We read these names, they mean nothing to us, but these tetrarchs, each of them had a region of one quarter of the proconsular area. 
Archon is the word for ruler in Greek. Tetra is the word for. So this was a, a ruler of a fourth part of the proconsular area. And we are given the names of the men that were in power at that time. And the reason that Luke does all this is he wants us to understand that this is not just some fluffy prophetic word. This is tied to specific events and you can identify exactly when it occurred. So in God's mind, the prophetic should be anchored in space and time. I'm taking that phraseology from Thomas Torrance, who's a famous Scottish theologian. Space and time. And it was during this time that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. John had been living in the wilderness. He was away from the halls of power. He was away from the cities. He was something of a recluse. He was a miraculous man in his own regard. He'd been born to a woman who was past the age of childbearing. And so he'd grown up with parents that might well have been his grandparents' age. And as he went out, he went into all the region proclaiming. He was preaching. Now, we use preaching many different ways today. I'm preaching, but I've got an iPad. I've got a Bible. I've got prepared notes. I more or less know what I want to say. And that's a form of preaching, but this kind of preaching isn't that. This is the living Word of God. This is the Word that comes out, and there's really nothing prepared except for what's already been birthed within you because that Word of God had already been growing and redoubling within the soul of John while he was in the wilderness. Reminds me of some years ago when the United States launched an exploratory satellite called Pioneer 10. Pioneer 10, you know, it left the Earth, it left the Earth's orbit, it went out beyond the moon, it passed Mars and kept on going and, you know, it, it got out near Saturn and it flew inside the rings of Saturn between the planet and the rings and it, it was broadcasting back to the Earth and I remember reading an account of, of this, the journey of Pioneer 10, and it said, it start, the storyline began, I can still, it was so poetic, it just burned its way into my mind. It said, it came as a mere whisper, a billionth of a watt, as Pioneer 10 hurtled through the rings of, spat, of Saturn into the darkness of space. When the Word of God begins to come, it comes as a mere whisper. Elijah on Mount Horeb, it says, the word of the Lord came to him as a mere whisper. It was a thin whisper. It was a mere billionth of a watt. And yet it began to redouble. One billionth became two billionths. Two billionths became four. Four became eight. Eight became 16. And as it doubled and redoubled and redoubled, it began to grow. And pretty soon, the power of exponential compounding being what it is, Pretty soon, while John is waiting on the Lord, something begins to rise within him. It's no longer sub-wattage. It moves up 10 watts, 100 watts, 50,000 watts. This is a word ready to go. This is a word ready to broadcast. This is how it happens. And the Greek is very clear. It is, it's a second aorist. It's an unusual construction. But what it means is this is something that happens, and then it happens again on itself, and then it happens again on itself. And the more it happens, the more powerful it becomes. This is how the word of prophecy builds and grows within an individual and within people. We have to know this because when the word is still at that billionth of a watt level, it could easily be snuffed out by the schemes of men, by the busyness of life, by, well, any number of things. And yet prophecy was on the leading edge of this move of God, this inbreaking of the kingdom of God that was going to come in the life of Jesus. And so we see 
Luke, he carries on. Now, we, I kind of jump forward to Luke 3, but in Luke, <clears throat> Luke chapter 2, we have this account. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. I made mention of it a moment ago. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All right, so we know who the proconsul was in Syria, who would have been the analog to Pilate, sorry, um, yeah, Pilate being the proconsul of Judea. And everybody went to be registered, each to his own town, and Joseph went up to his own town, to Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the line of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, what we're seeing here is the fulfillment of prophecy because if you will stick your finger in Luke, because we'll come back to it, but go forward a bit into the Old Testament and kind of thrash around at the back of it because most of us don't know the back end of the Old Testament very well. We see a prophecy in the book of Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. This is an insignificant town. It has no, no reason to be famous or well-known. It's just a wide spot in the road. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from of ancient of days. And so what's happening in this passage in Luke, in Luke 2, we're seeing that here they come, they come to Bethlehem, and this is to fulfill the words of the prophet. So when prophecy is released, it has a live dynamic aspect to it, but one of the aspects of it that we cannot ignore is the reaching back into the past and grabbing a hold of a word that God had given that may well have gone dormant. It may well have been forgotten completely and totally, and somehow it gets recovered. When I was teaching yesterday, I shared out of Isaiah 5, and I said, this word right here, Isaiah 5, this is how the vineyard movement got its name vineyard. There are few alive today who know the story. And part of what we're trying to do in that is to summon back to life something that is old prophecy. And what we see in this story in Luke 2 is old prophecy is coming to life. Things that had been forgotten, things that had been laid down. <coughs> Sorry, I've still got the very tail end of a <coughs> something that I picked up in New Zealand. <laughs> Figures, right? Pure dodge. <laughs> and then we see this Matthew chapter 2 more of the fulfillment of old prophecy Matthew chapter 2 verse 17 says this then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah now this is speaking of the murder of the innocents this is Herod sends out the army to kill all baby boys under two years of age because he wants to kill this king who's going to rise he's concerned he will lose his own throne his own position of power this was fulfilled this is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah a voice was heard in Ramah 
weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And yet here's the funny thing. In Jeremiah's time, the children had been slaughtered by the armies of Babylon. The word had already been fulfilled, and yet now it's being fulfilled again. And so one of the things we see is that in the fulfillment of prophecy, there is an awakening of something that may well have already occurred, and yet God puts his hand on it and gives it a new spin, a new twist, a new interpretation, a new life for the current period. We see it in the time of Jesus, and we should expect that in a move of God in our current time, there will also be a similar kind of reawakening of old verses, old passages, old promises, things coming to life, things long forgotten that had been laid down. And then Matthew chapter 2 continues, actually reverse order, but I've decided to put it here. Uh, verse 13, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Well, that's the part we just read. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So there was a word that had been given. He's quoting from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, a different Old Testament prophecy coming to life, that somebody was going to be summoned out of Egypt. And so now we see three fulfillments of prophecy. Prophecy matters. In fact, there's more than 600. The exact number is 613 fulfilled prophecies that deal with the coming of Jesus in the first time around in the Old Testament that all got fulfilled in the New Testament. Now the, the odds of that happening are so remote that if you do the statistical analysis behind it, um, there, there is no way in the history of the universe, even if you believe in a 15 billion year old universe, there's no way in the history of the universe that could have happened by random chance. That's the way the statistics fall out. We don't even teach on that aspect of the prophetic edge of the gospel anymore. There was a time when churches taught these things. But again, these are things that have passed out of knowledge, and so they need to be reawakened, and that's what God is doing with prophecy right now. But that's all old prophecy. That's all prophecy about the then, how those things are rediscovered. I've only given you three. If I gave you 613, well, the child care workers would mutiny. I can tell you that. That's the, that's the then. But the other side of prophecy is that it not only grabs from something from the past, brings it forward into the now, and reignites it, it also has a current edge to it. It has something about it that is live and modern. We see this in Luke chapter 1. And in Luke chapter 1, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. <clears throat> and Luke 1.39, in those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Mary, excuse me, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. So much for the idea that it's just protoplasm. Why would the baby leap in the womb if the baby weren't able to hear the voice of the mother of Jesus? and react, respond to whatever it was that was on her. And Elizabeth at that moment was filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember what I taught yesterday about the, the relationship between infilling and prophesying. And she exclaimed with a loud cry. This is, this is loud. This is not 
quiet and peaceable. This is not the well-behaved uh, mannerisms. I talked about this yesterday too of, you know, a good white middle-class Australian or American where we keep our voice down and behave decently and in order. Boardroom behavior, if you will, please. In a loud voice she said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. There was something that arose out of her as the word of God came upon her. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy or leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. This is a now word. This isn't drawing on the past. This is the word as it is delivered in the moment as that encounter occurs. And in response to Elizabeth's words, Mary prophesies. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now yesterday I taught about prophetic oracles. This is a prophetic oracle. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. It exalts. You know, there's rejoicing and be like, yeah, I'm really happy. But exalting is kind of a soaring declaration. It's a will-not-be-put-down kind of a thing. Where somebody rises up, they soar on the wings of eagles. They are ascending into God, if you want to say it that way. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, and behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. She's making a proclamation over her own life by the spirit of prophecy, and thus it is that even to this day, what do the Catholics and the Orthodox Christians say? Holy Mary, Mother of God, blessed are you among women. There it is, right there in the scripture. She's making a declaration. Prophecy has a durative effect when it is uttered under inspiration. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant, and behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. There's that theme of mercy that I taught about yesterday. This is an intergenerational thing that God has underway. This is not something that's just all about us. We have children to raise them unto the Lord. In fact, John Wimber said one time in my hearing, it was a little shocking when I first heard him say it, but he said the purpose of marriage is to have children. And I remember when he said it, I kind of, I thought, well, there's other reasons to get married. But God is looking for a generation to raise another generation to another generation to another generation that we would raise them in the right ways of the Lord that there would never be a time on the earth when God is without a witnessing people who say we live and die unto the Lord we will serve him as for me and my house we will serve the Lord that's why we have children that's why God said be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth we should have a lot of children I know that doesn't fit the ZPG paradigm but that, that's rooted in a meme that is not rooted in Scripture. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, and he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of the humble estate, and he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. And he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham and to his offspring forever and Mary remained with her about three months before she returned home well not long after this John the Baptist is born 
And they go to circumcise him according to Jewish custom. And his mother, Elizabeth, says, well, his name's going to be John, even though they wanted to name him Zechariah after his father. But you might remember Zechariah had been struck dumb by an angel because he had not acknowledged the word of the Lord. Mary had said, be it unto me according to your will. I don't understand how this can happen. I've not lain with a man, but okay, if that's what you want, God, let bring it on. Whereas Zechariah is like, well, how can this be? This is, this is crazy. My wife can't even have children anymore. We're old. And the angel says, because you didn't believe, you're going to be dumb for a season. And so Zechariah has not been able to talk during the entire duration of this pregnancy. And they bring this baby to him, and he says, bring me a writing tablet. And he writes on it, his name is John. And they all wondered that he would say this because there was no one in the family named John, but at that very moment, because he is now honoring the word of the Lord, his tongue is loosed. Do you want to know what will loose the tongues of the people of God? Let's start honoring the word of prophecy. One of the things that I am really burdened about as I travel in many countries these days is everywhere I go, the voice of prophecy is muted. In some cases, it's been turned off completely and silenced. And in other cases, it's like this loud. And the voice of prophecy, the coal Yahweh, the voice of God should be resonating, echoing. It should be thundering down valleys. It should be rising high over the hills. It should be found in the land. Because the word of prophecy accompanies the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. We're going to come back to that theme in a moment. And so... His tongue is loosed and fear came on all their neighbors and everybody through all the hill country of Judea began talking about it. Yeah, what a sign and a wonder. This guy who hadn't been able to talk, the very moment he writes, his name is John, bang, his tongue is loosed. And as his tongue is loosed, they say, what then will this child be? What will become of this child? There's destiny on him. Destiny waiting to be awakened. And then his father, Zechariah, he too was filled with the Holy Spirit. As had been Elizabeth, as had been Mary, now so Zechariah, the Spirit of God comes upon him. The Spirit of prophecy moves upon him and he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. There he is, he's saying, what was old and true then remains true today even if it's old. Time does not matter to God. The word of the Lord stands true. It stands forever. In order that we should be saved from our enemies in the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. This is good quality prophecy. This isn't that kind of B and C grade stuff we talked about this weekend. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. He's remembering what he said to Abraham. At this point, the promise to Abraham is 2,000 years old. In our time, it's 4,000 years old. And it still is speaking. Though they are dead, they still speak. This is the power of prophecy when it is recovered. And that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before all our days. And then Zechariah turns and he points at this child. It doesn't say he pointed, but in my mind as I see this played out, he turns and he says, You, child, this is your destiny. You will be called the prophet of the Most High. 
You will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people. Why would they need that knowledge? Because they've lost the right way. They don't know how to be saved. They don't know how to find God. You will give knowledge of salvation to the people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is your calling, son. This is what we know you will become. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit. There's that same idea of egeneto. He grew and became strong. He was strong here, but then he became stronger here and then stronger here and then stronger here. And the older he got, the stronger it got, and the word began to double and redouble and redouble. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearing. And then the word of the Lord was released. This that we are talking about is the dynamic living voice of God. This is that thing that when you hear it, it does something inside of you. If you are in any way oriented towards God himself, there, it's like it strikes a chord and boom! It starts to resonate inside of you. It becomes transformative in itself. The book of Proverbs speaks about the voice of God and there is something about it that has miraculous power to it. It has the power to call the dead to life. It has the power to summon the dead bones of Ezekiel out of the, out of the valley of death. It has the ability to speak to a nation that is reprobate and apostate and turned away and going their own way and it says, align with the ways of God and suddenly... They're seeking God, and people came out from the cities. They came out from everywhere because of what was emanating out of John. The Kol Yahweh was summoning them. This is more than somebody speaking enthusiastically. This is more than what you can learn in a classroom, although I do think you can make it better by being better in your delivery and more focused in what you say. But there is something of this of God himself that is flowing through the prophet when this occurs. And so as we've already said, it includes the rediscovery of old words as we have shown and new living words for the present and it will also carry with it words about the future, that which is to come, that which is hidden at the moment and not visible to the naked eye but the unseen things are eternal. And we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on the unseen. That is what we look toward. And as we look into the unseen, we see what is not as though it were, and we call it forth. Prophecy then awakens faith in the people of God. We live in a time of faithlessness. In this country today, I just did a, a conference over in Western Australia earlier this year called Quo Vadis. That's Latin for where are you going? Where are you going, Lord? <clears throat> and in that, Kate and I did some research on, you know, what's happening in the Australian religious scene. The news is actually better than you might have thought, but that doesn't mean it's good yet. There's about 95% of people in Australia that are in one way or another wayward and backslidden and, and not really deliberately following the Lord. But when we move into this time of prophetic voice being released, it calls people into a place of faith. It summons them back to something that they've departed from. Once upon a time, this was a nation of Christians. They may not have all been great Christians, but on some level, most people would have said they were that. Now, it's not as clear that they would do that. 
So when we talk about these prophecies of the future, the Lord will begin to speak about that which is to come, a great awakening, a great visitation. And one of the things that interested me was, you know, I was here teaching on prophecy this weekend. Little did I know that the Australian Prophetic Council, you know, down the road in another part of Brisbane would be meeting this week as well. And there were a bunch of prophetic voices from all over Australia. Now, those people... I would say almost to a person, come from a different stream or tribe from vineyard. That's okay. There were 12 tribes in Israel. We're all right with that. But what I thought was interesting was that this was the first such gathering that has happened in recent times. And in it, there was a unique and distinct Australian voice of prophecy that was rising up. Now, if prophecy is on the leading edge of a move of God, of a declaration of the kingdom of God, then you would anticipate that there would be somehow a raising up of prophetic voices and a multiplication of people who can speak prophetically into the times. Everybody in their own context as the Lord you know, gives them position to do what they do. And, of course, the word that's being uh, sounded forth is that this is the time of visitation that we are in. Some, some were bold enough to say that they thought this might even begin as early as 2016, which if that's right means we're sort of, you know, whatever, 50 days from the start of that interval. Everybody was aware of the words that have been given over this nation going back to Pedro de Quiros 400 years ago, the great Southland of the Holy Spirit word. By the way, the Kiwis do get to lay claim to that one too, but... You have more people than they do. Everybody was aware of the words that had been prophesied by William Seymour, the leader of the Azusa Street Revival, of a great visitation that would begin about 100 years after Azusa Street, and it would begin in Australia, and it would go out to the islands of the sea. Well, Azusa Street hit its, hit its peak in, in uh, 1908 and ended in 1909. So about 100 years hence would be 2008. We're in 2015. We're in the zone. And then everybody was aware of the words that had been spoken by Smith Wigglesworth, who had done a crusade through this part of the world. He went to New Zealand. He went to Australia. And when he was in Sydney in 1923, he said in the latter years of the 20th century and in the first years of the 21st century, there will come a move of God that will arise southwest of where I am standing. And he said it will go through the whole of the nation of Australia and from there to the islands of the sea and from there to the world. This is a time of awakening. This is a time of destiny. God is raising prophets in Australia because prophecy has to be on the leading edge of a great move of the kingdom of God. Now, as with the first time here that we see the template in the pages of the New Testament, it might be bloody. I mean, all these babies were slaughtered by Herod. It might be that the prophets have to go into hiding. Jesus had to go flee into Egypt, obviously under his parents' tutelage. As a baby, he wouldn't have had any knowledge, but notwithstanding. So we see that there, there can be imperfections, and it can be a, a little bit nitty-gritty at times. We should not let that discourage us. Instead, we should focus on the fact that the coal Yahweh is starting to resonate. And the volume is going to come up. It's not just going to be a mere billionth of a watt kind of a thing. Now, in the, in the recovery of, 
of a great move of God. There is something that happens as well in which truths that have lain hidden in plain view for a long time, suddenly they are reawakened. In the vineyard movement itself, the reawakening was the rediscovery of kingdom teaching and the refocusing of it into what the kingdom of God is really about, that God is breaking in, God is mounting a rescue operation, God is coming to visit his people, God is going to break through and bring healing and salvation and deliverance and a whole bunch of other things. That's all wrapped up in the, in the genetic code, in the baseline of the vineyard. It's why we have to keep returning to the kingdom message. It's part of what gave this stream its power. It's part of what caused that deep current to run that drew many along into it. But when we hear that living voice of God, there's something that draws and arrests us. We hear strains of it not only in the teachings of men like John Wimber, we hear it in the voice of modern prophets that God can raise up too. If you know of Martin Luther King, he was a reformer in my country, fought against racism and the legacy of what continued on long after slavery had ended. And, you know, Martin Luther King was assassinated for his prophetic ministry, calling our nation out of the shadows of racism. But even at this distance, we can hear the, the voice of God resonating through his famous speech, I have a dream. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down at the table of brotherhood. You can hear the coal Yahweh in that. I have a dream that even in the great state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, it will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. You can hear the coal Yahweh resonating. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama, one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and little black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and little white girls and sit down together at the table of God. That's Martin Luther King. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. You can hear the Kol Yahweh. The Kol Yahweh is rising and I'm here to tell you that the Lord has a dream today too. God himself has a dream for Australia. A dream that one day soon his voice will not be bound by religious leaders who have determined to shut down the voice of the prophets, who have decided to use the church for their own ends, to use it for their own power and ambition and pride and greed. God will have his way with the Australian church. The Lord has a dream that one day all of his people will be filled again, that the Davarim, the words of Yahweh, will again flow, cascade out of the mouths of the people of God. That is God's dream. And in that, the Kol Yahweh, the voice of God, will resonate through the mountains and the valleys. It will go to far north Queensland. It will descend into Victoria. And it will echo across the red dust plains of the center of this country. It will take the Northern Territory. It will take Western Australia. God's wave is going to break on this country. And when it happens, it will take the halls of power too. 
It will address the injustice. It will address the corruption. The word of the Lord is going to be loosed in this country soon. The Lord has a dream that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of His glory. Or to quote it directly, the Lord has a dream that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the Lord's dream. And when we see the Lord's dream fulfilled, then we will see the kingdom of God come in power. That is what we are working toward. That is what we lean into. Unto this we labor. Unto this we cling. We can do no other. And on this we stand, so help me God. This is God's burden in time. Now, I know we have to release children and we have to be mindful of the child care workers too. <clears throat> but there are a number of you as I was sharing, the spirit of prophecy began to fall on you. I could see the physical presence of God coming on you. Others of you, inside of you, your chest was boiling. Your stomach was bubbling over. The Spirit of God was rising within you. If that is you, come up to the front now because the Lord wants to release the spirit of prophecy on those who are called to this in this country, in this house. <clears throat> 